Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in Military History. Today I'm speaking with Beth Bailey, Foundation Distinguished Professor of History at the University of Kansas. We're discussing her great new book, An Army of Fire, How the U.S. Army Confronted Its Racial Crisis in the Vietnam Era, from UNC Press. An Army of Fire details the racial strife between black and white soldiers fighting a grueling war in Vietnam. It examines the causes and major events that led to tensions and infighting, and how the U.S. Army attempted to resolve what they termed the problem of race. Beth, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. It's a pleasure to be here. First off, I just want to mention that this was a, an extremely readable book, uh, and that, that's not always the case for uh, for academic books, but, but this book was was really uh, uh, just, just easy to read, and I think just a great uh, introduction to thinking about some of the... Of the uh, other other ways of thinking about the Vietnam War uh, and just the, the unbelievable layers to it, uh, and I thought that you took sort of the two elements of the Vietnam era and, and combined them in this in this way that was really fascinating. Um, but before jumping to the book, I was wondering if you could just tell me a little about yourself and your background. Sure, um, but first let me say thank you. I really appreciate that. I always try to write something that people want to read and um, try to find people to bring the history to life. So it means a lot that you said that. Uh, so, as you said, I'm a Foundation Distinguished Professor at the University of Kansas, and I run the Center for Military War and Society Studies here. Um, I have had somewhat unusual career in that I began as a cultural historian who studied gender and sexuality, and my first book was on the history of dating. Um, I moved to military history as a kind of, I don't know, midlife crisis, mid-career. Um, I'm getting bored with this. I want to do something different. And uh, began uh, knowing so little about the military that I was uh, making flashcards so that I could recognize rank insignia, um, which, you know, was not an auspicious beginning, but it was an essential one. And so I'm a military historian in the sense that I write about the military um, as an institution as opposed to an operational history or war and society history. Um, and I, I've uh, written a fair number of books or edited books um, about the U.S. military, the recent U.S. military, including um, America's Army making the all-volunteer force, and then co-edited books on managing sex in the U.S. military and understanding the U.S. wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, beyond Pearl Harbor, which um, starts with the uh, almost simultaneous Japanese attacks all over the Pacific on December 7th and 8th and goes on from there. Um, and uh, I... As I said, I really, really enjoy writing. I enjoy archival research. And this book came out of almost, I hate to say it, 10 years of delving into archives and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with this story. Not that I didn't do other things in the meantime, but uh, this this book has been a very long labor of love. Uh, I, lo- I love that you you talked about how you, you started your career uh, in a completely different field and then moved into another one. I think that that's always great and fascinating when uh, when scholars start in one area and then move to another, and it just allows for for, for different perspectives uh, to come through. Uh, 
you know, you, you sort of uh, ended the question uh, with, with the question that I want to ask now, which is just how did the idea for this, this book come about? Well, when you do something like jump field so dramatically the way I did, um, especially before there were as many people who were bringing questions um, about things like gender and sexuality or social change to the study of the military, you're always being asked if, if there's any kind of logic to what you're doing, whether there's anything that holds it together. And I have written more than one grant application or you know application for promotion where I had to make sense of that MOOC. And I've always been really interested in how social change happens. And I like to think about how people try to solve problems. And, and by that, I mean, individuals or institutions, or organizations, uh, nations, organizations of various sorts. And so this book took on a problem that I had glimpsed, more than glimpsed, that I had encountered as I was writing about the U.S. Army's transition to the all-volunteer force um, in the late 60s and early 70s when all of the discussions were going on, um, which, was, which was the issue of race. And the racial crisis, uh, the the racial violence that was breaking out in the ranks, and I just wanted to understand how how the army tried to address that problem, because I wanted to think about how it solved problems. And I think the moment I realized that I was going to write the book the way I wrote it was a conversation I had with a, a very close friend of mine who who died a few years ago. Um, he showed up in a course I was teaching on war and American culture at the University of New Mexico. He was uh, late 50s at that point. He had been alert, a, a long-range reconnaissance patrol uh, in the Army during the Vietnam War. He had been a recruiter. Um, and we got to be really good friends after um, I left the university and he um, no longer was a student of mine. And I would go to him to ask questions, and I kept sending him emails and you know telling him something, and he kept sending me back. It's like, yeah, that's what it says. That's not what it means. No, you're not getting it. You're not getting it. And finally, he said, you're trying to make sense of the Army like it's a university. Uh, it's not. You're, you're trying to make sense of this in the context that you have, the world you live in. You, this is a different world. And something clicked, and I started thinking, I want to understand how the Army is an institution define this problem and how it tried to solve it based on its own sense of itself as an institution, its leader's own sense of the institution they worked in. And and that's what made this book that had started out with just sort of a vague interest in this racial crisis and army uh, army attempts to figure out what to do. It, it made it gel. And from then on, I knew what I was doing. So something that you mentioned in the introduction of the book is that it was a common view at the time in the 1960s and even earlier that the U.S. Army was a sort of a model of, of racial progress. And I was wondering if you talk a little about the uh, the sort of history of the U.S. Army from desegregation until the events in the book and why the U.S. Army was seen this way. The Army, the U.S. Army was not 100% on board with the notion of racial integration, to say the least. Um, and Truman's order never really mandated racial integration, in fact. It was not until after the uh, Korean War that the army was considered to be fully racially integrated. But by the early 1960s, the army's narrative and um, a set of understandings that was largely endorsed by black leaders and by uh, black members of the army 
was that the Army offered better opportunities to African Americans than civilian society did, um, that the Army was a place that believed in colorblindness. Uh, the, the phrase, I see only one color, and that's OD, olive drab, was, was a, a little bit too omnipresent. It suggested a little bit of defensiveness there. Um, but but there was there was truth to that. It says more about civilian society's failures probably than it said about the Army's successes. But many, many young men um, believed and found some truth to the fact that they found greater opportunity in the U.S. military than they found in civilian society. Um, and generally, you could find all sorts of discussion about how the Army was leading the way or the U.S. military was leading the way in racial integration. It was a model for the way that the American society in general uh, should should try to approach the questions, should try to solve the problems that it confronted as it, it ended Jim Crow, legal Jim Crow, and started to think about how a more equitable society would look. Um, one of my favorites is um, an NBC special called Same Mud, Same Blood that traced a unit in Vietnam, uh, a combat unit in Vietnam, and talked about how um, its members had transcended the divides of race. and um, Again, this was something that was very much cast in a certain way to make a case. The, that journalist really relied on about six people and carefully chose out of a month of, of interviewing um, the, the, the quotes that he was going to use, the footage that he was going to use. He wanted to make the case for transcendence. Um, but it was the way in which people talked about the military at that time, that it was a greater place for opportunity for black people than civilian society. And the fact that the army didn't blow up as um, the violence in the American streets in the you know mid-60s on showed was taken as evidence that, that they were succeeding. What, what impact did the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. have on soldiers in Vietnam, particularly black officers, recruits, and draftees? Obviously, the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. had a, had a massive impact uh, back in the United States, but, but what was the particular impact in Vietnam itself? Well, um, partly um, I'm writing not just about Vietnam, but about the U.S. military throughout the world at this point. So within the United States, but particularly in West Germany, uh, in in Japan and Korea and elsewhere. And again, the army leaders were really proud that things had not blown up in the U.S. Army around the assassination of Martin Luther King. There were some uh, there were some fights that broke out. There were some words exchanged. There was some egregious behavior on the part of some white soldiers who did things like, um, you know, uh, post hang Confederate flags or or um, offer insults to to black soldiers. But it had a longer impact. So the fact that some white soldiers celebrated the assassination of Martin Luther King, the fact that um, at times officers refused to let black soldiers attend memorials that were set up, um, had a, a long uh, force, it created a shadow, it created distrust that would come to fruition later. So the immediate impact might have not been so much. But the impact, the longer term impact was great. And the fact that the U.S. Army was bringing people in steadily from civilian society throughout this time during the war in Vietnam meant that a lot of young men who had experienced the upheaval and the anger and the frustration and the sense of hopelessness that this assassination brought 
then came into the army, bringing with them those sentiments and those experiences meant that what happened to the army in 1968 might not matter so much as what happened in civilian society in 1968 as those young men that came into the U.S. military. One of the events that you discuss in the book of, of, a, of a moment of, of particular uh, tension was the uprising at Long Bin Jail. So I was wondering if you could describe what happened here, uh, you know, sort of as, a, as an example for, for maybe how the worst that things got. So um, there was an uprising at Long Bin Jail, which was at the massive Long Bin post outside of Saigon um, that took place simultaneously with the... Um, the riots in the streets, the the uh, attacks on protesters at the Democratic National Convention in August of 1968. So you can see that the turn to violence was not something that was limited to race or limited to the war in Vietnam, the, the soldiers who are fighting the war in Vietnam on the U.S. side. Um, a, a group of prisoners in a prearranged uh, action, rose up, uh, attacked guards, um, burned buildings to the ground, uh, beat guards and other prisoners. It was it was black uh, personnel who were incarcerated there, um, along with a few Hispanic personnel, and um, seized control of a large part of the prison of the stockade and held control for weeks. Um, they, after they seized control, they tried to set up what they saw as an African space, and they improvised using army blankets to form what they called the shikis, and they created sort of pseudo-African drums, and they made very clear that their whole goal here was to create a space that was Black, that was, in their view, African, and... Um, what was striking to me was not only the level of violence, and um, I do want to reiterate that a lot of the people who were involved in this uprising were not there because they had done something like, you know, refuse to say yes, sir, or get a haircut. Um, this was a place that by 1968 had a lot of prisoners of all races and ethnicities who um, had done things that are truly egregious. Um, but the army wasn't willing to confront that it was about race, uh, that it was about uh, African-American soldiers' sense that they were being disproportionately punished and incarcerated and treated differently. Um, and the after-action report that the military police put out gave all sorts of uh, suggestions about how to avoid uprisings like this in the future, and it never once mentioned race. And so I saw this story that I tell in some detail in the book as not only a precursor of what is to come, the violence that is to come, but also a sign of how reluctant army leaders were to confront the underlying crisis of race that was yielding the violence, the anger, and the explosions that it was going to have to come. One of the central figures of the book is Major Lavelle Merritt. Um, and I, I was wondering if you could talk about who he was and what, what he tried to do uh, to address the, the racism that black soldiers were facing. So Lavelle Merritt is um, also, uh, also, the story of Lavelle Merritt is is parallel to the story of Long Bin Jail. They happened the same summer. Um, and in, in some other ways, this book does owe itself to Lavelle Merritt because when I first started doing a little bit of exploration, trying to figure out whether there was a book here, 
Um, the National Archives, under uh, the, the criteria of U.S. Army race, had a single file, and that single file contained one piece of paper, which was uh, a photocopy of an article about Lavelle Merritt. Lavelle Merritt was a major in the U.S. Army uh, who had served well um, and was assigned to uh, a training unit in Vietnam. And he was the only black officer there. He was growing increasingly frustrated about the ways in which both institutional and personal racism had impacted his own career, but more broadly about the ways in which racism um, shaped the lives of black people in the United States. And he took it upon himself to try to educate his subordinates and peers about this topic. Um, he, according to um, his his fellow officers, tended to corner people in the mess hall or in um, other other sites and try to make them understand what he felt so powerful. He got frustrated enough one night uh, in the the bar. Um, having had a few drinks, as had almost everybody else in there, that he threw a chair across the room. Um, it's the, the accounts of what happened really vary. Sometimes it sounds as if he uh, sort of gave it an underhanded toss. Other times it sounds as if he really hurled it with all, all force. Um, and he ended up being brought up on charges of um, you know, not acting as an officer and a gentleman and uh, other other such charges. And, and the fundamental charge was that he was obsessed with the problem of race. Now, on, on some level, he probably was. Um, but on another level, he was trying to say something that the Army needed to hear. And what he did was to go into a... Um, a press briefing in Saigon and hand out an eight-page manifesto in which he said the U.S. military is the greatest citadel of racism on the face of the earth. And he went on in, in detail to explain how he saw this world. Um, and, and just like with the Long Bin Jail, the Army didn't want to confront race. The, the Army didn't want to hear the story that he was trying to tell. And so both the story of Long Bin Jail and the story of Lavelle Merritt, to my mind, signaled how black soldiers and officers, um, and, and Merritt was unusual in, in the sense because it was usually not black officers who were carrying this message, were trying to make army leaders listen to what they had experienced and understand the crisis that lay at the heart of race relations in the U.S. military and how reluctant army leaders were to hear that. So when a change comes, it is a profound change. Another figure that you talk about is Stanley Reeser, and, and he's uh, he's sort of on the opposite side of the table. He's a, he's a, a white guy who's, who's in a, a very high position um, of power in the U.S. Army. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk about his views and how he interpreted the, uh, the racial problem and ultimately like the defining and putting this in quotations, the problem of race. So Stanley Reeser was the secretary of the army. Um, and in 1969, he went before the Association of the U.S. Army and gave a speech in which he essentially said that the racial crisis that the army was experiencing was second only to the U.S. war in Vietnam in terms of what the army should be worrying about. Um, now, he was building on work that had already been done uh, under uh, William Westmoreland, who was chief of staff of the Army, who had appointed a commission to try and look into what was going on in terms of race relations in the Army. And in his speech, he heavily quoted 
um, a, a lieutenant colonel named James White, African-American lieutenant colonel who had been an integral part of this uh, committee. But what, what Stanley Reeser said is that, and I'm using the language of the time that was the respectful language um, that um, was preferred by most black lead, older black leaders, he said, you know, you can put a, quote, Negro in uniform, but that doesn't just turn him into a soldier. He becomes a Negro soldier. So what he's saying is that all of this talk about colorblindness, all this talk about I see only one color and that's OD, um, is in the language of the time a cop-out, that we have to recognize race, that the U.S. Army, in its assumptions of colorblindness, defaults white that when we see only one color and that's OD, that OD is white. And so if we say, um, you know, everybody's hair should be cut the same way and that way is defined as white wall, which is something that is only possible for white people, we are, are failing to treat people equally. We have to see difference in order to provide equality. Equality cannot be colorblind. Um, and he and William Westmoreland set out a, a major and ambitious program to try to confront this crisis, this racial crisis that was ex beginning to explode in the army, the violence that was happening, the, the resistance that was happening, the anger that was happening, the fights between black and white service members, um, because they believed, um, as did many other senior leaders, that this racial crisis, this racial conflict was threatening the ability of the U.S. Army to fulfill its mission of national defense. They might have believed morally it was a good thing to do, but the reason that they took this action is because they believed that the mission of the U.S. Army was in threat. What was the reception of Stanley Reiser's uh, views? Uh, I know he gave a speech on this matter, and he, you know, it was something that, like as you said, that he was extremely concerned about. So, so how, what was the reception like? Well, that's the thing about the military is that um, you know people can issue orders and they can enforce orders. And so um, the reception varied enormously, especially among the officers. Um, you know, some people were heavily committed black and white to notions of racial equality and racial justice. Um, some white officers were died in the wool segregationists that were extraordinarily racist. I'd say, having done read a lot of private papers, that they fell on the side of the angels more often than on the side of the devils. But nonetheless, there was a difference. But when the Secretary of the Army and the Chief of Staff of the Army tell you what to do, you follow those orders. Um, implementation was more or less enthusiastic, but what the Army did was, and, and this surprises me every time I see it, um, was to employ a great deal of creativity to try and figure out, okay, what do we do to solve this problem? This problem threatens our existence. How do we solve it? And because of the way the army functions, there was a lot of incentive to come up with solutions. Because if you come up with a solution that functions, you're going to get attention. Your your you know your program or you yourself are are going to benefit in terms of the structure of of the army. Um, so quite a few people really invested heavily in trying to come up with solutions to what they saw as a something that you describe in the book is the Racial Harmony Council that took place at Fort Carson. And I was wondering if you could talk about this event uh, and what was discussed and the outcomes of it. A lot of the point I'm trying to make in the book is that we have to understand 
the institutional culture of an organization, the institutional logic of an organization to see how it's going to define a problem and then try to solve it. And when I say institutional logic, I mean, uh, the, you know, the culture and history and traditions, the policy and practices, the, the organization. Um, and so what I tried to do was to say, okay, how did the military try to solve the problems? And the first place that the army is going to look, army leaders are going to look is leadership. And so they said, it's the responsibility of the commander. Um, whatever happens is the responsibility of the person in command. And Fort Carson, um, the Race Relations Council is, you know, in many ways, my, my favorite example of what happened. But army leaders started to say, okay, we have a real advantage over civilian society because what we can do is issue orders and enforce them. But rank hierarchy also creates a problem. People who are, you know, uh, junior officers and NCOs closer to the men and women they command don't really want to send up the ladder that I'm failing to address a problem. I'm, I'm doing a bad job here. And a lot of times when policies are created, the implementation as it goes down, the hierarchy becomes a little bit loose and has a lot of flexibility depending on how people closest to those enlisted troops interpret it. So at Fort Carson and in some other places, um, the senior leaders created what they called either enlisted men's councils or race relations councils, which were made up of low-ranking enlisted men. Um, in this case, it was mostly black men. There were uh, a, a couple of, of others. And they put these um, these enlisted men in frequent, if not daily, contact with the senior leader on post. So at Fort Carson, this group of privates was meeting daily with, um, if I remember correctly, a three-star general. And explaining to him what they saw as the problems. And the whole notion was, is they were supposed to speak directly. They were supposed to pay no attention to the protocol of rank. And you end up with, uh, you know, a, a private calling uh, a general an effing pig. You end up with a lot of very direct language being used. But you do end up with often a sense of, well, we, we are getting heard um, and generals who are willing to take action tr to try and forestall what they see as crisis. Um, at Fort Carson, it was interesting because there was uh, a, a, a young man at the time named Darnell Summers who had, in fact, been incarcerated and charged with killing a police officer, um, which seems to have been a false charge, had been released and was there. And he became very close to um, General um, DeWitt Smith and um, had a profound impact on General Smith's understanding of the racial crisis. So on, on one of the things, what happened is that it sometimes created trust. It sometimes forced, for, you know, forestalled violence or explosions. On the other hand, all the NCOs and junior officers who were trying to manage the, the men, white, black, other day-to-day -to, -day to enforce order and discipline often found their authority undercut because we have privates who, you know, just simply walk around all those junior officers and NCOs and go straight to the general and 
complain about them. So it was highly creative. It was based on leadership. It was based on the notion that there are natural leaders out there and we can use them. We can use their leadership qualities. But it undercut the authority of junior officers and NCOs. And it also created a constant problem because these young men rotated out. They weren't lifers. And so they just had to keep identifying people, building trust to death. But that was one of the examples of how they turned to leadership because it was what was the most obvious solution to army leaders. But then they used notions of leadership that counteracted and, and contradicted army logic of rank hierarchy and to some extent order and discipline. Another thing that you discuss in the book, and I think this is another uh, you know, interesting example of how the army attempted to address problems, uh, was the employment of Willie Lee Morrow, uh, a black barber from San Diego. And I was wondering if you could tell, talk a little bit about his story because uh, it just re it really is so fascinating. Like reading this section, I was just like really blown away by it. So can you talk about him? <laughs> yeah, uh, Willie Lee Morrow is um, a, a, a just amazing entrepreneur. Um, he had uh, grown up in Alabama, I believe, and uh, ended up out in, in Southern California um, as a barber, but a barber who was building an empire. Um, he wrote a book that was very well received about cutting black hair. Uh, he eventually invented um, what uh, the Afro pick, and he came up with a whole series of chemical treatments that would make him a good deal of money in the future. But what was happening um, in the military as we got away from the the question is leadership is you know what are young men complaining about? And young black men who were coming into the army out of a world in which black pride and black identity was ever more at the center of understandings of, of um, visibility and one's sense of self in American society and a society that had discriminated against them and marginalized them for, for so long. Um, they discovered that what a lot of young men in the military, white and black, cared about profoundly was hair, their haircuts. And this was particularly true of black men who wanted to be able to wear an afro, who said that the haircut that the army insisted upon was the haircut of slaves. It was the haircut of those people who had been stripped of their rights and enslaved by the white man. And so the army decided to experiment with allowing black men to wear what the army called afros. Um, it was a highly modified afro, but you know it could be you know, sort of picked out, teased out, or pushed down to sit in under caps. And they sent Willie Lee Morrow all over the world to train local barbers um, throughout the world on how to cut black hair. Uh, and they also stopped treating the afro as a quote specialty haircut and treated it as just another haircut. And before, what they had done essentially is say, if you're black, you have to pay more for haircuts because you don't fit the normal quote haircut. Um, and and Willie Lee Morrow had interviews with the Pacific and and the very Stars and Stripes and said, I understand what afros mean to black soldiers. It's a sign of their identity. It's a sign of black pride. And the army went on board. Um, army logic, though, if you allow one group to do something because it is uh, an important symbol to them, you have to allow all groups to do something that's an important symbol to them. And so, as Black soldiers said, we want to be able to wear afros as a sign of Black pride and Black power. We want to wear what they called slave bands or slave bracelets to show uh, our history. 
some Southern white soldiers started saying, well, we want to recognize our culture too. Uh, we want to fly the Confederate flag. And in fact, army leaders would say proudly, yes, we make no distinction. You know, we allow people to wear the, the quote, slave band and to fly the Confederate flag as if they were doing something that was uh, uh, progressive. And obviously flying the Confederate flag was not improving race relations, let's say, um, in the U.S. military. So again, they try something that violates the, the, the notions of uniformity by allowing people to claim an identity other than soldier. But then they have to contend with the problems. If everything's uniform and you allow some people symbols, you have to allow everybody symbols. Uh, we're running into problems with our institutional logic. And so basically, they just said you can't fly any flag, but the Union flag and the U.S. flag. I would love if you if you could talk a little, uh, you know, just just generally uh, about the institutional logic of the army. You, you've you've brought it up a, a couple of times, but I think um, you know I, I would love to hear just about you know the the notion of institutional logic and then how it applies to the U.S. Army in this case. But that's what I ended up building this book around is thinking about social change um, and how it happens. And um, I, I told you the story about my friend David Pankey and, and you know, you're trying to make sense of, of the army like it's in university. Um, but I was also writing this book um, after the murder of George Floyd and the subsequent protest. And so I was thinking an awful lot about how how social change comes. And, you know, even the most devoted activists don't believe that activism is the end point. Um, in order for social change to happen, it has to be incorporated into the culture of the nation. It has to be incorporated into its laws and, 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 and into its institutions. And so the U.S. military, especially at this moment, was a massive institution. Uh, I think 1.9 million young men and some women were, were members of the U.S. military during the Vietnam era. Um, so I wanted to think about what does it mean um, to incorporate demands for change, whether those demands are um, itemized and uh, practical or whether they are just in the language of rage and violence. How do you incorporate those demands for change into an institution? And my argument is that for anybody involved, understanding the institutional logic of the institution is central because if you if you understand what's going to make people in the institution care about it and you're somebody seeking change, it gives you a tool to use. And it also helps you understand when you have to just reject that institutional logic because there's nothing that's going to make them care and, and step outside and exert a different kind of pressure. And if you're somebody in an institution who's looking at demands for change, um, sympathetically or not sympathetically, understanding the institutional logic helps you think about how to address those demands in in the best possible fashion. Um, if if you if you are either wanting to or forced to address demands, understanding how your institution functions helps you think about what's going to be the most um, efficient and and practical uh, and useful way to address those demands. So the Army, in some sense, uh, you know, it's what I write about. Uh, it, it's, it's a major, powerful institution that we should care about. But it's also a case study for people to think about institutional change in general and how one can bring it about. And I think the, the fundamental lesson I came away with here is that individuals make a huge difference. Despite 
um, racism that is structural, despite racism that is institutional, despite racism or other forms of discrimination or, or problems that are interwoven into the structure of the institutions involved. It made an enormous difference when individuals acted. Um, individuals who were protesting, individuals who were in positions of authority, individuals who were trying to manage things on a local level, it made a huge difference. And that's a positive lesson that I can come away from the book with. Yeah, I, I, I suppose, you know, in, in conclusion, you know, how, how, how do you think about on two levels? One, you know, was was the army was the U.S. Army? Obviously, we know that the U.S. Army was not successful in Vietnam, uh, ultimately. But was the U.S. Army uh, successful in in you know addressing the the racial crisis and uh, you know making it so that the problems that the U.S. Army was fundamentally facing were you know related to uh, to battle and operational problems? Uh, and then you know also how do you view outside of this the comparing it to the in you know the U.S. Army's ability to stabilize? How do you think about what they they ultimately did and and what it what it means or meant for the future of the U.S. Army going forward? Yeah, so the goal of Army leaders was to stabilize the U.S. Army. The goal of Army leaders was to um, manage the threat to Army efficacy um, from the racial crisis and the racial violence that it was experiencing, and it succeeded. It succeeded in its goal. So, yes, it succeeded. Did it succeed in ending racism and racial discrimination and institutional problems within the army in regard to race? Well, obviously not completely. Um, we, we still certainly face problems within. Um, I might say that issues of gender may be more pressing today um, than issues of race, um, just given the rate of sexual harassment and assault that we, we continue to see. Um, but those are two separate things. But because the Army was acting in its own interest in trying to stabilize the U.S. Army as an institution, it made fundamental changes that improved the lives of people of color in the Army. It addressed questions of communication and leadership and recognized the uh, significance of listening to the voices of those people who are, are advocating for change. It instituted training and education programs. It looked again at the process of military justice and did a whole lot of analysis trying to understand why black servicemen were being uh, given Article 15's nonjudicial punishment and also incarcerated at higher rates than white servicemen were. Um, it, uh, it began a program of affirmative action in a long-term effort to try to make sure that um, black officers were at least proportional to their population in the United States, uh, something that couldn't be solved solved or addressed immediately because it's a long-term process of raising up a general officer. Um, and it uh, really, to its own ends, thought hard about race. It bureaucratized race. It made race a category that had to be addressed. It could not be ignored. And that changed the experience of people of color in the U.S. Army um, to the better. You do talk about how this was seen as an issue just between, just a, among the male soldiers, that even if the Women's Army Corps made up a small portion um, of, of the army, it was still around 13,000 people. So, uh, you know, I, I was wondering if you could just briefly uh, touch on, on the, the, the aspect of gender uh, at play here. Yeah, it's, it's a very strange thing to write a book in which um, there are essentially no women 
And I, I was highly conscious of that and trying to figure out whether I should be trying to weave in the story of women more. But because I was looking at institutional logic, what I saw was that the army leaders um, were, were not really concerned about women threatening the stability of the U.S. military. Uh, Enlisted women were a very small, small percentage of the military. They were not going to be sent into combat. Uh, they tended, um, with a few exceptions, not to you know, advocate for change in the same fashion. They certainly were much less likely to have violent uprisings than the men were. Um, and so all of the solutions that were proposed were really very much male-focused because the army was worried about racial violence and conflict, and women weren't causing problems. It also is very black-white focused because the conflict was coming between black and white soldiers. Um, there were other members, other races and ethnicities represented in the U.S. military, and they were often mentioned in some kind of overview, but then they disappeared because members of those groups were not perceived by military leaders, by army leaders, as causing problems. It was African-American troops, by and large, who were fed up with the racism they encountered, who were um, concerned with advocating for racial justice, um, and the conflict that they had were with white soldiers, um, many of whom were um, not pleased with the challenge to the status quo, but sometimes were just, you know, were, were sometimes attacked simply because they were white, because they represented whiteness. Um, and so it became a male problem and it became a white and black problem. Um, other women were on the periphery, members of other race and ethnicities were acknowledged and simply dismissed because they weren't forcing the army to confront an issue at that point. Yeah, no, thank you for that for that answer. It, it's, um, you know, it, it, it's interesting. I think it's really interesting the way that you put it. And, and also sometimes the, the tension between what you want to put in, what, what you want to find, you know, the evidence that you want to find and then what evidence actually is there and, you know, going by uh, by what what's there, the fact that the army wasn't focused on on women and deciding to to focus on what what the evidence is showing you. Um, I yeah. mean, to, to to point out that silence and to explain that silence, um, not simply to accept the army's terms. What I'm trying to do is to say, look, this is how they defined it. We have to analyze why they defined it that way and what it meant to define it that way, not just to accept the, the definitions that they had. Um, but to explore the implications of those definitions. And because they were worried about the stability of the military, not because they were acting because they were worried about the stability of the army, not because they were committing themselves to a moral endeavor of social equality, even if some people certainly believed that that was a, a goal that should be embraced. Yeah, no, and, and, and the book the book really does just show that this, you know, you, you do a great job of, tra of tracing you know, where is it that is that institutional logic is leading the day? And where is it that, you know, moral uh, concern occasionally rears its head and just yeah. tension between <laughs> between between those two? Um, you know, I, I think I think it is it is definitely one of those books uh, where even though it's about it's about the past, just is extremely relevant and useful to think of, to use the framework that you've outlined to think about uh, contemporary issues. Uh, well, Beth, thank you so much for, for being a guest on the New Books Network. It was, it was great speaking with you. The book is An Army of Fire, How the U.S. Army Confronted Its Racial Crisis in the Vietnam Era from UNC Press. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed talking with you. Of course. It was wonderful.